0: that it was going to be live, I think it went onto YouTube, and I went, So ah, who cares, it works now, I can see people here as well, G'day Wayne, Uh, now after the feedback from last week as well, I'm going to be more careful to not look away from the microphone, which you've got to look away from, because I'm just looking forward to getting home, (laughs) I've honestly reached that point, Mm. so anyway, a little bit different, doing this late today, This is uh, actually our last day of of travel, so I will be home in my own bed tonight, which would be nice. And uh, we're still in Hobart, actually, where were we last week? So last week I did it with Charlotte as well, and we're in Cradle Mountain. Uh, Wayne says, you always seem to be talking before the stream starts. Yeah, I'll fix it when I get home. (laughs) From next week onwards it'll be fine. This is why I don't really have anything of substance for the first minute or two as well, but uh, thank you for the feedback. Uh, so last week we were in Cradle Mountain in Tasmania. Again, for those of you from other parts of the world, Tasmania is the little island down the bottom of Australia, which, uh, which we had not been to before this trip. So in Cradle Mountain, that was, that was very beautiful. Were, I think actually the day we did that live stream, we'd done, uh, done this massive hike and it was, they will be wall photos. They're definitely photos that are getting blown up on the wall. After that, went to uh, Launceston, which is basically just a stop along the way, one of uh, Tasmania's major cities. Not, not a whole lot to see there. And then went to Fresenay, which was, everyone said, look, this is gonna be the best thing about the about our holiday. Uh, and I think it was, it was an amazing spot. And we stayed at a location where they just have all these different cool activities for you to do. And we're sort of, I'm going to talk about what happened last night in a moment. <laughs> this morning over breakfast, it's, it's what is it, it's 8 o'clock on Sunday morning here. This morning over breakfast, we are talking about sort of highlights and lowlights. And I, I think Fraser and was particularly epic because it was, the activities were really cool. So, running through them, <laughs> we went to, a, there was an oyster tasting thing where you put on waders and you walk out to the oyster reefs and they just like take the oysters off the reef and then they got a table, you know, like a, a high table, which is almost like an oyster reef itself. They put a tablecloth on it, a little bit of a uh, little bit of sparkling wine, some oysters, it was just like super fresh out of the water. It was it was just really really cool. Again, like epic wall photos, I think from there. More my usual sort of thing. ATVs. The ATVs were really cool, so we quite enjoyed driving ATVs around, which was <clears throat> pretty uh, pretty cool. It's it's the sort of thing that. Could very easily be very watered down and demure, but uh, this was a good pace and a whole bunch of, like, uh, puddle splashes and things like that just got absolutely smashed <laughs> with water. There's a video on my my tweet stream with that. There's some um, Probably the other thing which was, was particularly cool was clay shooting. So I had not been clay shooting before. Charlotte had never shot a gun of any kind before, so it was kind of a little bit new for both of us. But uh, that was fun. Now, the... I posted a couple of tweets last night, but I was like, I won't, I won't say too much while we're sitting here having some drinks about how the experience was. But Mona is the Museum of New Art here in Hobart. And everyone's like, you got to go to Mona. Mona's amazing. So, okay, we, we just went and ticked all the boxes for all the things you can do, like the boat cruise out and the walk around the museum and then a dinner there and performance and acts and things. And I don't know. The museum was all right. It was... Been to a lot of museums before. This was a little bit, a little bit weird. But I guess New art can be a little bit weird. But the uh, the performance at the end was so bad, we just left. That's I've come out and say it, just as it is. And that's probably upsetting some people because apparently a lot of people really liked it. But it was just, it was just terrible. <laughs> it was so, so weird. And we paid a lot of money for the experience too. But it was just like. I would much rather be in a pub now having a beer. So uh, that was a little bit of a, a downer to end that on, but everything else was cool. All right, let me jump into <coughs> the uh, other content. And usual content first around sponsors. Our sponsor this week is CrowdSec, again, a, a repeat sponsor. So thank you very much to CrowdSec, the open source and collaborative security stack. <coughs> respond to attacks and share signals across the community. Download it for free. Uh, and it's again I like it when sponsors do things for free everybody likes things for free so go and visit CrowdSec outnumbering cyber criminals all we're gonna talk about some cyber criminals today too and some numbers wow so check out CrowdSec thank you very much for those folks for their sponsorship this week and all of the other weeks that they've done in the past as well now content wise I've got a lot of stuff here I'm just looking down at my laptop uh, Some of it is fun, some of it is a bit more serious, but that does tend to be the way. So, fun stuff first. Someone, someone scraped one of my, like this has happened so many times, scraping my blog posts and just reproducing them somewhere else completely different, usually monetized with ads. And I'm just trying to bring up the tweet here. I've shared this. And uh, this is actually related to a blog post from the week before this one just gone, which I am going to talk about in a moment. Uh, The blog post was about uh, anonymity and privacy and the use of SHA-1 in Pwn Passwords API. Now, someone, uh, it's it's actually kind of funny, and I'll explain a bit more when I get into the post, but I've got a a SHA-1 hash which I'll put in the blog post. And I kind of made the comment in the blog post that this SHA-1 hash uh, does not appear in any Google searches, Until now, because now I've written a blog post about I put in there, this will be the only thing that comes up. And I said this in the blog post and inevitably, someone thought, okay, I'm gonna test that. So they searched for the SHA-1 hash and they found a scrape of my content. Now, uh, I think everyone can sort of figure out how I feel about people scraping my content. And it wasn't like one of those summaries, you know, it's like the first paragraph and then click through to the story. It is just the entire thing been scraped and reproduced. Now, this uh, this site has got a lot of ads on here. Uh, <laughs> there are Ads on this, next to my blog post about Canaanimity and Shah One about the Canadian women's national team qualifying for the 2023 FIFA World Cup. Doesn't really seem to be really related content. It's just spam, 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 top to bottom. Now, when they scraped my content, They scraped just the content, not the images. The images they have embedded from my site. You can see where this is going. So a pro tip to anyone scraping content, like if you're going to scrape someone's content and you want to reproduce it, if you just scrape all of their HTML and you embed the images from your site, then every request to that image comes with a referrer header, which is from a completely different site, in this case from newswwc.com. Now, when I see an inbound request that has that referrer header and it's looking for... Jeez, I feel tired today. (laughs) I was probably trying to recover from last night. Uh, When I see that inbound request and it has that referrer header, I can decide what I want to return from that request. Do I return the hero image that's meant to be on the top of the page? Do I return something else? This isn't the first time I've had this happen. So I already had a Cloudflare worker on Troyhunt.com doing exactly what I needed it to do. So now if you go to that page, I'll drop it here in the comments just for everyone to enjoy it. In its full glory, if you now go to that page, you will see Rick Rolls, which is fun. And it also allowed me to actually show Charlotte what a Rick Roll, as you remember from last week's uh, episode when she and I were on here together, she didn't know what a Rick Roll was. It does now because you can see it on the scraped content. Uh. It just felt unnecessarily hard, why would you do that? Anyway, so that was that. Now, let's talk about the really big one. This actually consumed quite a bit of time this week, the Shanghai police data breach of allegedly a billion people. Now, Chinese data breaches are always a little bit different to what I'm used to for several reasons. Uh, Number one, it's very hard to verify them due to the fact that most Chinese data breaches I see have uh, verification, not via username and password, but very, very frequently, frequently, most of the time, I don't know, a lot, by phone number. So you will enter the phone number and then you'll inevitably get an SMS to the phone number and then you authenticate it. It just seems to be more of a cultural norm. That makes it harder for me to like, go and grab Mailinator addresses and then plug those Mailinator addresses into password reset and see if it gets a hit. I always find it harder to find enumeration vectors, plus I don't speak Chinese and I don't recognise any of the language and a lot of stuff is in Chinese. I can use Google Translate on the page and kind of wing it. It makes it harder. The other thing that's extraordinarily hard is disclosure. And this will bring me to one of the data breaches this week. In fact, we'll talk about that now. Mangatune. Mangatune, 23 million records, Hong Kong based service. The chances of me getting a reply from them were just about nothing. The person sent me the data, so look, I've been trying to reach them, but they haven't replied. I went, okay, well, I'll give it a go too. I tweeted as well. Anyone got a security contact at Mangatoon? Of course, no reply. Uh, now, that, that was the Mangatune thing. I'm not going to sort of delve into that. I've got too much other stuff today. But I just never have an expectation of getting a reply for anything related to Chinese data breach. This Hong Kong, uh, Hong Kong, Shanghai, rather, Shanghai police situation was... Someone on a hacking forum popping up saying, I've got a billion records of the Shanghai Police Department, including things like police reports, which have been submitted. Here's a sample of 250,000. Now, I had someone drop me that in the DMs pretty early on. And then before you know it, there's reporters crawling all over it as well. So I think that the first person I spoke to was someone from the Wall Street Journal said, look, uh, we're, we're seeing this. We're trying to figure out if it's legitimate or not. Now, this was a lady with a, a name that implied to me that she was more likely to speak Chinese than me. So I said, all right, well, why don't you have a look at this sample? It's got phone numbers in it. Just call some of them. Call them up, ask them if this is legitimate or not. And so she goes away, and a few hours later we're talking, and she's like, yeah, a whole bunch of people have said, yes, this is legitimate. Now, that raises another interesting point. When we say legitimate, is it that... The phone numbers and the email addresses and the names and the addresses and the dates of birth and the genders and the things that are pretty generic to many data breaches, are they legitimate? And if yes, well then that's important, but that doesn't necessarily allow us to attribute it back to the Shanghai police as the source. But within this data is police reports. So the example that the, the journal gave me, she said, look, for, for one of the people there, they had reported their iPhone as lost or stolen or something like this. Uh, and that was the data that was in this alleged breach, and that was legitimate. Now, that doesn't come from a data aggregator. Uh, it doesn't come from a spam list. It doesn't come from capforum.cn or anything like that. That comes from a very, very specific use case. So when we saw that, it's like, okay, well, this is actually starting to, tick boxes in terms of legitimacy so where else could that data have come from now the the, the headline here is the almost 1 billion records think it's like 960 million or something like that it's not clear to me whether that is records versus unique identities it's also not clear to me how many of those might have email addresses in them uh, in terms of the suitability for having been pwned but that's the, the thing that's been getting all of the, the traction, and it's, it's been like a who's who of, of media interviews this week. There's the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, CNN, something else, multiple other ones, I don't know. But the big American ones seem very interested in it, which is quite, quite interesting. We haven't seen, as far as I know to date, if anyone hears any different, please drop me a note in the comments, but we haven't heard of any statement from Shanghai Police. And it's one of the the comments I made to one of the journalists, I said, look, normally around data breaches, when there's all of this discussion about it, uh, an implicated organisation will come out and say something like, we're aware of rumours, they might deny them altogether, they might say, yes, it's accurate, they might say we're investigating, but they normally say something. It's really unusual to have complete radio silence, especially when it's getting so much press. Now, I do wonder if this is perhaps a cultural thing again as well. Uh, In my experience, breaches related to China tend to go a lot more unnoticed. But uh, I don't know, if you're in China, if you're in China watching YouTube, uh, if you have an understanding of that, then then let me know or leave a comment. But it, it does seem like things there fly under the radar a lot more. Now, I don't know where this is going to go, but if I had to hazard a guess, incidentally, the entire data set being sold for 200,000 US dollars worth of Bitcoin. If the whole thing does end up getting sold and someone pays the money, or even if they don't, and then the price drops, or like uh, every time we see, I think back to like LinkedIn and Dropbox, every time we see data put up for sale for some large amount of money, sooner or later it normally turns out there in public circulation so if this does <coughs> excuse me become uh, out there in public circulation that will obviously be something i'll take a much closer look at for the moment it's a big news story but lots of unanswered questions so uh, let's see where that one goes sort of interesting okay blog post this week I actually pumped out well three blog posts since i last spoke with this two in the week just gone and one the week before which is uh a bit of a record lately because I have been busy with other things shall one and K anonymity now I want to talk about this because it to be honest it's kind of one of those blog posts where it's like something's pissing me off and I want to write about it and I want to get it all down clearly and it relates to uh, the way both the pwned passwords implementation works I'm loading the blog post up here as I talk and also the way the k-anonymity email address search used by the likes of 1password and mozilla work and they both work on the same principle so as a as a really <clears throat> a really quick recap they work let's do the uh the password bit first because probably the most commonly used the password bit works by every single password in the database is represented by sha1 hash now the Sha1 hash you can then query by the first five characters. So you can go, hey, get me, I've got a password. it hashes down to this whole thing. The first five characters is one, two, three, four, five for the sake of simplicity. Go to the canonymity API, get me all of the hashes that begin with one, two, three, four, five, and then it comes back with the remaining 35 characters because there's 40 characters in a Sha1 hash. And then for every one of those hashes, it's like, here's how many times it's been seen. So you know, as the consumer of the service, well, you know the entire hash, but you're only giving away the first five characters, you're getting the whole thing back. If you find a match, you know that that hash was in there. If you know the hash was in there, you know the password was in there, because you've created the hash yourself. Now the joy of that is that for me as the service operator, I only see someone querying by the first five characters of a hash. So what it means is is that if I see a query for sha one hash prefix one, two, three, four, five, And if, and I don't do this, but hypothetically, if I was logging it and storing it and then trying to figure out what your passwords are, I've really got nothing to go on. The mathematical possibilities there are absolutely ginormous. Uh, Specifically 16 to the power of 35 because you've got 16 hexadecimal characters and you've got 35 positions that I don't know the values of. Massive, massive, massive number of possibilities. Now, why SHA-1? Because one of the things that's coming up and I had an email about this during the week where someone said we cannot use this service and one of the reasons is you're using SHA-1 and SHA-1 is bad. And I just... (sighs) Where do I begin? It, um... I'll be honest, it pissed me off. (laughs) It pissed me off because it was a fundamental misunderstanding of how the hashing algorithm is used. Now SHA-1, when you say SHA-1 is bad, SHA-1 is bad for... Storing passwords. If you run, and I'm going to, to talk about the difference because you're like, hang on a moment. But Troy, didn't you just say you store your passwords as SHA1? If you run an online service, you've got a million customers and a million passwords, and you store them as SHA1. SHA1 is very, very easily brute forced. Doesn't even matter if it's salted. You can calculate billions of SHA1 hashes per second with modern GPU hardware. This is why we use adaptive hashing algorithms, where we can increase the workload, such as the very popular bcrypt. So SHA-1 you'd never store passwords with, terrible idea. SHA-1 for integrity checks is another big one. So we often use hashing algorithms for integrity checks. Uh, There is a file, the SHA-1 hash of this file is that. Therefore, if ever there is another representation of this file somewhere else, you can always run a SHA-1 hash over it. And if the value you get is the same, you know it's the same file. This is the fundamentals of an integrity check. In recent years, and we really are talking the last five to ten years, there has been more research around how can you create deliberate hash collisions such that you can forge a file to hash down to the same value but it's a different file. So you've got good file and it creates a SHA-1 hash and then attacker goes well I'm now going to go and modify that file, create a bad file but construct it in such a way that it creates the same SHA-1 hash. This is why we've moved away from SHA-1 to stronger versions of the algorithm for things like integrity checks. Now they create headlines of SHA-1 being bad because it's bad (laughs) in those contexts. Why is it in have I been pwned then? Well it's really simple, there's a lot of data in pwned passwords which is not beautifully parsed. Now, let me just be clear, when I say a lot, it is like sub 1%, but sub 1% of 850 million or something is still quite a lot. So imagine a hacker goes and dumps a whole bunch of data. They don't always parse it out nicely. When there's things like password lists floating around, the password lists aren't always nicely parsed. Sometimes you end up with an entire row from a source data breach. If it was my row, it would have My name, my email address, my home address, my gender, my birth date, what breakfast cereal I eat, whatever else the service had on me, and the password in there. And if I was to have that in a plain text file that I gave to people with all the other 850 million passwords in it, I would then be redistributing someone's, okay, mine in this case, but someone's PII. The other thing is some people do actually put PII in their passwords people use their email address as a password or their phone number or something else that relates to them. So plain text passwords was never going to work for pwned passwords. I made this decision years and years and years ago. So I SHA1 hashed it. Now, as it relates to things like well brute forcing and all the rest of it, when we're talking about, particularly when we're talking about parsing errors, where there's a whole bunch of other crap in the line, no one's brute forcing that because no one's going to have a dictionary with that value in it. They're also not going to be constructing a 50 character string of random values and then throwing it at their hashing algorithm and trying to see if it's the same thing. SHA-1's fast, but when we talk about large character spaces, it's just still simply not going to be feasible. So this is why SHA-1 was chosen. It was to give protection to PII that might exist in password files. It's not for integrity checks. It's not for storing normal user passwords, which could then be brute forced. Now, just sort a comment in here. Rob says, same deal with MD5, as long as you also check the input length. Every variant of SHA is very fast. So when we look at... Uh, password storage. I had someone recently said, oh, you know, we're not using SHA-1, we're using SHA-256, so we're fine. No, you're not. You're not, because you can still create billions of SHA-256 hashes per second on consumer-grade hardware. SHA-512, same deal. None of those are good for storing passwords in an online system where we're talking like user passwords. So as it relates to POMed passwords, it doesn't matter that we're using SHA-1. And if an organization is going to go, look, we just... We just can't use it because we've seen the word SHA-1. Okay, then don't. I don't care. I don't make any money from playing passwords. It's just there as a community service, and if you don't want to use it, then don't use it. Now, uh, someone did actually leave a comment. Uh, I can't remember if it was on the the blog post itself or somewhere on Twitter where they they said something to the effect of, like, just the appearance of the word SHA-1 would get it binned by the security team or something like that. And it's like, well... Do you still have like base 64? You know, like what if you're base 64 encoding something? Does that get binned? Because a whole bunch of people think base 64 is encryption. Literally, <laughs> literally got this as a, one of the slides in one of the talks I was doing years ago. There's an online training service. This will still be there somewhere, the, the talk. Online training service for, uh, for CyberSec. Uh, and it's like, you need to store customer details. Use base 64 to encrypt the customer details. Oh God. Anyway, so. That's just a misunderstanding. Now, as it relates to the email address search, that, uh, and in the blog post, so this is the one that Mozilla uses as part of Firefox Monitor, 1Password uses it, a handful of other commercial subscribers use it. It is something that they pay for. There's a whole bunch of reasons behind that. It's basically the same thing as the password search, but it's the first six characters of a SHA-1 hash instead of the first five. Now, there's a good reason for that. When I started pwn Passwords, I think there were about 250 million in there. It's now up to about 850 million. When I built the K-Anonymity search for email addresses, there were about, I think at the time, about 4 billion unique email addresses. So massively, massively more. And I had to try and find this sweet spot between the fewer characters you provide of the prefix, the more anonymity you have because there are more characters that you don't know but the fewer you provide, that means the more results are going to come back. So if you search for the first five characters of the SHA1 hash of an email address, you're going to get a very, very, very large result. If you search for the first six characters, that result is much smaller. So it was finding the sweet spot. The email addresses are a much larger corpus of data and have I been pwned than what the passwords are. So that's why we ended up with that position. Now that brings us to the anonymity piece and the the position someone put to me in an email the other day is they said, the problem with this is it's PII. I'm like, (laughs) let's just, let me take a step back. Let me acknowledge for a moment that depending on where you are in the world, there are different definitions of PII. Now off the top of my head, and I can't remember this precisely, but when I was doing some training material, I think when I was doing training material for Veronis around GDPR, where you were in the world, sometimes IP address was considered PII and sometimes it was not. So, part of the problem here is that different parts of the world have different views of what constitutes PII and how privacy is dealt with. Let's just use the logical view. Personally identifiable information. Is a piece of information personally identifiable or could it reasonably be tied back to an individual? I would argue that, that an IP address would always be PII. Because an IP address in many cases is static, so it's like, okay, every time you come and you use the website, let's say from your home broadband connection, it's going to be the same. Uh, Also, an IP address is assigned by your ISP. They have logs of who had what IP address at what time. An IP address has a very high likelihood of being tied back to an individual. This is why things like VPNs are so popular, so that your IP address is obfuscated. Obviously, things like your email address is PII. Your phone number is PII. Sometimes it's a bit more nuanced. You have to combine things. Is your name and your address together PII? Uh, just a name, John Smith. Oh, there's a lot of John Smith out there. But a fragment of a hash of an email address, is there any way we can reasonably identify someone from that? So you got to an email address, hashes down, 40 characters long, you've got the first six characters, so you now have 16 to the power of 34 different possible characters off the end of that. I don't know what that number is, it's very large, it's got a lot of commas. I literally put the whole thing in the blog post, because it's like, look at how freaking long this number is. You've got a one and that many numbers are getting the hash right, if you have those first six characters. And then there are hash collisions and because there are hash collisions this means that there are multiple input strings that create the same output string so the probability is actually even more remote when it sort of pushed kind of shove and i i pushed this person on it the other day i said all right humor me just give me an example if i give you a hash prefix of one two three four five six whose email address is that i'm like well Obviously, we can't answer that question. Oh, okay, well, that's kind of my point. I think that their issue, I think honestly their issue is that they've got, this is the same person that had an issue with the user share one. There's a compliance officer somewhere with the box, and the box somehow draws the conclusion that because a partial hash or because the full hash is derived from PII and then you've got a fraction of something that is derived from PII, that makes it... It doesn't. That's just stupid. It's just stupid. Like I said, I wanted to have a little bit of a rant on that blog post. It just did not make any sense at all to me. But that's okay. It doesn't matter. Not everyone has to like it. It's really easy just not to use it. <laughs> can and do something else. Okay. <clears throat> Simpler note. Polish government. So Polish government is now on Pine. They are the 34th government to come on board now as soon as i say on have i been pwned every time i say it publicly a whole bunch of people are oh crap polish government's been pwned no not like that it just means that they have access to the same set of government apis that the other 33 before them beginning with australia and the uk first two governments on board they have access to apis where they can query their domains so uh, this is uh, an allow list of domains that the government can query in the case of uh, Australia, it's .gov.au, or .gov.uk in the UK. And it's literally just a regex, you can query anything, .gov.uk, along with some other very specific examples. So our our scientific research department in Australia, the CSIRO, they're not on a .gov.au domain, so there is an allow list of individual domains as well. So Poland comes on board there, they can now query all of those, which is great. Uh, I had this idea the other day, like, wouldn't it, would it be nice to like, <laughs> I'm saying this at the end of a long holiday, as like I'm really ready to just go back and sleep in my own bed. Wouldn't it be nice to do like the world tour of have I been to governments? Because there's like Jamaica, I'd love to go to Jamaica. I haven't been to Poland, I'd like to go there. And a whole bunch of other places I have been, I'd like to go back to. In fact, I will be seeing some of them. I'm going to be... Back in Europe later this year, I'm definitely going to be seeing Norwegian folks there. Uh, plan is to spend some time with uh, with some companies and government folks there. But I'll try and do the other ones somewhere, <laughs> somewhere in the future. Now, last thing in terms of blog posts. Uh, yesterday or the day before, <laughs> I can't remember when because trip's become a blur. I, uh, I did post about getting my MVP renewed, so this is the 12th. MVP renewal which is which is wonderful it's it's something which I guess has become uh, uh, predictable insofar as I do pretty much the same things each year in terms of the community stuff uh, so I get the same reward reward award which is nice and yeah just just getting that each year is a, a really nice reminder particularly when there's so much stuff over the last couple of years in particular I've had to do which is sitting at home, not facing people, not having that, that sort of first-person engagement. Actually, last thing on that before I end this week's update, <laughs> the last one on mobile for a while, is I did do a meetup in Hobart. Uh, when was that? Thursday, I think it was. Several days ago. Blue. <laughs> Several days ago Atterbury, which was really cool. I uh, had a whole bunch of people turn up there, drank some beers, did some talking. It was, uh, it was really nice to be able to do something face-to-face again. And there'll be many more face-to-face things coming up. Actually, what's the next thing on my list? That's a good, good question. I know I've got NDC Sydney coming up in October. Uh, actually, the next two things on my list, I've got NDC uh, Sydney for the tenth to the fourteenth of October, so I will be physically there in Sydney. I uh, also got go to Copenhagen from the third to the seventh October. That will be remote. Uh, I am actually going to be in Copenhagen in December in person, physically. Not not entirely sure yet whether we're going to do meetups or anything like that, but uh, I will be there with the family, doing the family things. It's all very Christmassy in Copenhagen then. And uh, until then, definitely in Sydney. So with that, I'm going to tune out for now. I will be doing this from home with the better audio and the lighting and, and frankly, organisation. Thank you for bearing with me over the last three weeks. It's four of these videos I've done on the road. Uh, I need to work a little bit more on my remote kit and try and sort out some of the teething problems i've I've had these last few weeks but uh thanks for persevering see you from home next week